Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Who cares that we had an off week? And I gave you a pod last week. I'm giving you another one this week. And we have Nashville Super Speedway track president Eric Moses on with us. He's got some D.C. roots, which I always love chatting with him about. And... Coming into the sport as a relative outsider, he has absolutely went to school. He has done his homework. He has already gained more knowledge for the sport than I probably will ever have. And he is just one of the smartest, most captivating individuals I think that we have in the sport. I could listen to him talk all day. We're going to chat with him. We're going to chat a little bit about Knoxville, a little bit about Nashville as well. But before we do any of that, we got to pay homage to the number 53 this week slim pickens papa siegel what you got cooked up for us thank you Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 153 what's up with these 50 numbers i could have written an encyclopedia about the big names we discussed in the 40s but i'm scraping the bottom of the barrel so far in the 50s no offense jimmy means gober sosby and geoff bodine i can't even retreat to the cars movie bucket this week Less than 300 starts for the 53 in the Cup Series. Only one victory, which came from Nebraskan Bob Burdick in Atlanta in 1961. Only 15 races in his Cup career. So good on you, pal, but not enough to warrant this week's honors. So, who do we discuss? I've dug deep into my childhood to come up with the most famous Car 53 I can remember. And there's only one name that's synonymous with that car. Herbie the Love Bug first appeared on the big screen for Disney in 1968. You remember that white VW Beetle with the red, white, and blue racing stripes down the middle and the circular 53 decals, don't you? Herbie famously had a mind of his own driving himself all over the place in hard-to-imagine ways, all in aid of the specific film's protagonist. There have been at least six Herbie movies made so far, and even a short-lived TV series in 1982. But what's the connection between Herbie and NASCAR? You obviously didn't see the movie Herbie Fully Loaded in 2005 where Lindsay Lohan pilots a rag-topped Herbie, which must have been a nod to the old convertible series, right? To a NASCAR Nextel Cup Series win over the likes of Tony Stewart, Jeff Gordon, and other NASCAR regulars. The little car that could grossed almost $150 million for that cute film. Now that's getting it done. Kachiga! That's all for this week. I'm not sure things get much better in the short term for the 50s, but we'll do our best. Back to you, Duve. Wow, not one, but two. 
kachigas. We had a sad kachiga and a happy kachiga from mom. But uh, wow, that, that was surprising. I did not think that you were going to dig deep in your suitcase of courage. See what it did there, dad? To find a non-NASCAR, non-Indy car, non-Formula One, non-actual motorsports number to pay homage to. But I don't know why I ever doubted you. Herbie fully loaded. Underrated film, by the way. I remember I was watching that and I was like, wow, I don't know how they got this on camera. Like, there's literally a VW Beetle racing against cup cars at what was then, I think, California Speedway in Fontana. That was wild to me. Who knows? Maybe we'll be back next week with, with an actual driver from an actual motorsports discipline. But if we're not, you know what? It, it's my dad's segment. I'll let him do him. Let's start off this episode as we always do. You know what it is. A good old-fashioned And throw it straight over to my interview with Nashville Super Speedway track president and Washington, D.C.'s finest, Eric Moses. You guys may know the name because last year made a bit of a splash PR-wise. Eric is the first black track president in the history of NASCAR. And, oh, yeah, pretty easy task for you, Eric. Move to Nashville help revamp and revitalize a venue that's been pretty much dormant for the last decade plus and bring NASCAR racing back to the Music City, an area that's been starved for Cup Series racing. Yeah, no pressure. Easy peasy, right? Well, let me tell you, it was anything but easy, but he made it look easy. He made it sound easy. He made it seem easy. I know it wasn't, but Eric's going to take you through that journey and also his journey to how he got to this point. The work that he did in the XFL with the D.C. Defenders, working as the D.C. Sports Commissioner, how he built Nationals Park. Literally, he helped build it from the ground up. I was geeking out on that, being obviously a D.C. sports fan, wearing my national shirt right now. How he ended up getting in touch with Mike Tatoyan of Dover Motorsports and eventually becoming the track president of Nashville Super Speedway. And then once he took the job, again, he went to school. How did he learn about the sport? Who did he talk to? What did he do to learn about it? How did he learn about it? And obviously, there is a racial component to his story, right? The first black track president, that is not insignificant by any means. And as we talked about, representation matters. But I found his answer interesting on whether the fact that he is the first in this role, if that matters to him. I found his answer interesting, so stick around for that. He is one of the smartest dudes I think we have in the sport and probably one of the smartest we've had on the podcast. No offense to everybody else, but once you listen to him and you hear his background, I think you will agree with me. Cannot wait for you guys to hear it, so I will get out the way. Here's my chat with Nashville Super Speedway track president ahead of the Ally 400 race weekend, Eric Moses. Fletcher, welcome on to the show today. Nashville Super Speedway track president. More importantly, though, Washington, D.C.'s finest. It is Mr. Eric Moses, who has been on way too many Zoom calls today. And now, here you are on another one. <laughs> I'm happy that anybody wants to talk to me on Zoom or any other form of communication. So, good to be with you again, man. Good to be with you as well. Uh, we were just talking before we started recording. You're down there in Lebanon, Tennessee. I'm still here holding down the 202 for you. We do miss you. I know the XFL starting back up, and everything's... Uh, going hunky-dory. I went to Nats Park earlier this week. I'm going again this weekend. So I'm getting some Eric Moses vibes from this entire sporting summer that's coming up here in D.C. 
Well, I appreciate that. And I think um, you guys are getting ready to find out whether you're going to host a World Cup uh, uh, game as well as uh, well, Nashville is as well. But So I got my fingers crossed for both cities. Yeah, hopefully. We'll see. You did, did you deal with some soccer stuff when you were here? We'll get into it. But did you deal with like Audi Field so and that kind of stuff? I mean, I, I ran RFK. And so we were home to DC United. And then when That's I ran the XFL question. team, yes. they were our landlord at Audi right. Field. And so and went after two World Cup bids. So, yeah. Yeah. Just a bit of soccer in my background. <laughs> You're right. That was a dumb question. No, no, RFK, no. RFK is the soccer capital or was of DC for sure. All right. right. Um it must be an insanely, insanely busy time for you right now. You guys have the race weekend coming up here. You're doing tons of media. There's so much attention around you guys and around the racetrack. I'm sure it's stressful, but at the same time, like you said, you're glad to have the attention for this one weekend a year more than any other weekend, I'm sure. Yeah, no, you're always, always pleased that, that folks are helping us to get the word out and make certain that NASCAR fans uh, around the region are aware of our of our second annual NASCAR weekend triple header with our trucks running on Friday and our Xfinity cars on Saturday and the Ally 400 on Sunday. Um, so happy to be able to tell the story, happy to be able to tell people what they can expect this year, which will be kind of bigger and better, more to see experience and 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 uh, be involved with this year uh, than even last year. So before we dive into you and your background and everything, let's talk a little bit about what fans can expect this year i know that you guys are upping the parking situation because there was traffic flow that was a bit of an issue last year more parking spots free parking i love free parking that must be good things for your fans that are coming out there to lebanon yeah you and me neither neither one of us in dc is used to free parking that's not yeah. something that that exists why when you find it you got to keep it <laughs> yeah we we had some issues last year with with ingress um and, and it was kind of a combination of things. One, the track was new to a lot of our fans who hadn't been here before. And so not only were they stopping to pay to, to get into parking, but then they were asking the attendants their questions about, well, where's gate so-and-so and where are my seats? And, and you know, this year we won't have that. So in addition to investing and in clearing about 20 acres across the street from the track on property we own, uh, we have created 2,600 new parking spaces there. So what that will allow us to do is on the main artery coming into the track, we'll be able to load cars on both sides of the street at the same time. And so that will get people off of the street and into their parking uh, places faster and therefore into the venue faster. They won't stop to pay. Uh, we added a small parking surcharge uh, to every ticket uh, as opposed to charging people individually when they come in uh, to park. And so we think that's going to see uh, lots of improvement to the parking situation out here. I feel like looking back on it last year, the parking situation, given the fact that you were tasked with essentially revamping and bringing back to life a venue that was dormant. And the main issue that came out of it was, well, I really couldn't park that easily. I, all things considered, I feel like that was a successful year last year. You know what I mean? Big picture. And I know that you're a perfectionist and you want everything to be perfect. And I'm sure that it will be more towards that this year, but Looking back on it, in hindsight, things went pretty well last year, I would say. Overall, we were really pleased. I think the industry was pleased with, with the performance and the execution that we had here. To your point, you can always get better, and we look to do that. But, but in some ways, it's kind of like, you know, when you're planning for a, a big event, whether it's a wedding or, or you know, uh, some other kind of similar event, you know all of the little things that didn't go exactly yeah. the way you planned. A lot of times, the folks who came and had a good time were oblivious to it. Um, we, we had some things that we identified that our fans identified 
uh, parking, ingress, and, and egress was one of those, uh, as well as concession stands uh, and some of the lines there was another. And, and we're addressing all those things. Um, our concession stands, uh, this year we have added more than 60 new points of sale. So there'll be more places to, to, to buy food and beverage. And in addition to that, we've invested in upgrading our technology so that we can process transactions faster to get people through those lines faster. Uh, one of the things that I think we suffered from last year as did many live event venues was you just couldn't get staff, you couldn't get event staff. And so we were likely about 200 people shy of where I think we probably needed to be from a staffing standpoint to provide the kind of frictionless environment that we want our fans to have and the kind of level of service that we want them to have. So this year, we, you know, we got started earlier. We think that we'll, we'll do pretty well there. We'll make some gains there. But, you know, this labor market is still kind of tricky. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, what you said, you know, you can always improve on things. I know that you're a bit new to motorsports in the racing world, but you got the race car driver speak down pat. It's like, cause you know, race car drivers, they remember the losses more than the wins and those eat at the more and attract president like yourself. I guess you're not immune from that either. No, we're not. We're, we're all in it to, uh, to, to, to end up clean at the finish line, right? Yes. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want any paint off the car at the finish line. So uh, that, that's what we're looking to do. We don't want any, we want everybody to say they had a great time, saw a great race and want to come back next year. Yep, that's the goal. All right, let's go back a little bit. Let's talk DC. Let's talk your prior life before motorsports, an extensive one at that. When you were in here, in this city, you ran Events DC, which for those of you that don't know, is a huge, huge corporation that, well, that's what it sounds like. It helps run the events in the city of D.C. Uh, and you work for the city also in some other capacities. I know that you were the, the CEO of D.C. Sports and Entertainment Commission. You oversaw Nats Park, RFK, like you mentioned. Are you from here originally or are you from somewhere else in the country? Because I, I couldn't find that in my research. <laughs> I still got a few secrets. Uh, so I, I grew up in central New Jersey. Um, okay. And so uh, grew up there. Uh, went, finished high school, went to college and law school in North Carolina, and then right. moved to Washington, D.C. after law school. So I spent the better part of you know, 20 plus years in D.C. Okay. So originally from the East Coast, we're up north, came down to Charlotte for school, met in the middle for D.C., and now you're back, I guess, a little bit southwest. So you're slowly making your way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how far west I'll go, but, uh, but, but I love it here. Tennessee reminds me a lot of North Carolina. Um, I, I like to I tell people I'm a son of the South. You know, most of my family is, is from North Carolina, having spent a lot of time there, you know, living there, but also visiting as a child. Uh, I love it. And, um, and I love living here. So let's talk about um, the two main projects that I mentioned. I mean, Nats Park here, like in D.C., for, again, for those of you that don't live here, don't know. I mean, Nats Park is one of the nicest ballparks in the country more so one of the nicest facilities in the city in Navy Yard kind of helped build up that area of the city as well. And you had your fingerprints all over that project. We'll get to RFK in a second because that's kind of an historic institution in and of itself. But can you even try to begin to encapsulate what went into making Nats Park into what it was once it was finished and once it was built from the ground up? Because you literally were there start to finish. Yeah, well, it was a lot. It was a, a vision of, of Mayor Williams uh, and a lot of people in the city who pushed for it. It was certainly a group effort and contributions from from folks, our elected politicians, as, as well as 
so many of my colleagues at Events DC and the uh, Convention uh, Center uh, and all across the city. Uh, I will tell you that the, that Washington is 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 very good at using public projects uh, to help spur uh, development in areas that need it, and so that stadium was meant to anchor that part of the city southwest as you know the smallest quadrant of the city and one that was largely industrial and it had some nightclubs and stuff there um, but has been completely transformed into really a neighborhood it didn't yes. really feel like a neighborhood before and now it really is probably one of the most you know interesting and high-end neighborhoods i got tons of uh, friends that live there and they're moving there like crazy Oh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And I, when I first moved to D.C. back in the mid-90s, that's where I lived in Southwest. And I can assure you, it looked very, very different I'll take your uh, than it, it does now. And so um, the city was really good at that. I was pleased to have been and played a, a small part in that first starting and working uh, as a senior advisor to a council member when we were negotiating with Major League Baseball to determine whether or not we would provide a publicly funded stadium. And then obviously uh, getting involved uh, and the completion of that project and then working with the nationals, uh, once the building was open. That probably had to be one of the most fulfilling projects. Once you, once, once first pitch happened there, you're like, man, we did that. That is nuts. I mean, a ballpark is no easy feat and you guys did it. You did it well. It's pristine. Yeah, that was, that was certainly, um, satisfying. I think though, the most satisfying thing was seeing that world championship especially oh, yeah. given the way that the Nats kind of, as I like oh, to say, kind God. of backed into the, in the world series and backed into a championship. You know what I mean? You have Alex Bowman backing into wins. You got the Nats backing into championships. What are we doing here? Come on. I know it's ally 400 race week, but come on now, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> You're right though. We are very bad this year. Very, very bad. Well, you know, when they won that world series, would they lose all their home games and won all the, all the road games? And I think it's the first time that ever happened. I mean, it was in the, the playoffs. Yeah, the World yeah. Series that the Nats won a few years ago. Yeah, um, right. And so that's what I mean when I say they backed into it. It was just really the, an unconventional way to win the World Series. Right. But I was so happy uh, for Ted Lerner to have that opportunity after going through everything he went through to acquire that team and, and, and all the draft picks and, and all the investment and making that team good. And it was great for the city. You know, that and, and, and before that, the, the Caps finally winning, I got to – to take part in that uh, that parade for the Stanley Cup win, and that was uh, that was really otherworldly. And just you know, that city is such a great place, and and, and celebrating in Washington is uh, is like celebrating in no other place. So you work with the learners. I'm sure you work with Teddy Ballgame, Ted Leonsis a little bit. Um, RFK Stadium. When people hear that, longtime fans and longtime sports fans, they think of the team formerly known as the R Words, but now the Commanders. Um, did you end up working with Mr. Snyder at all, or was that kind of above your purview? And was that before the negotiations or the attempts to try to get a site back there really ramped up? Oh, I went to Redskins Park uh, not infrequently. Uh, and so I never worked with him personally, but certainly with uh, various members of his team. Um, as, as, as I said, when I took the job uh, to be sports commissioner back in 2008, um, one of my key objectives was to put more Washington in the Washington Redskins at the time, um, because as you know, practicing in Virginia, playing in Maryland, but calling themselves the Washington and now commanders, uh, we wanted to make certain that we were bringing that team back in whatever ways we could uh, to, to DC. And so I, I tried in vain for a lot of years to figure out ways to, 
Could we do a, a, a spring practice? Could we do an exhibition game in our kit? Lots of things like that. And we worked with them on, on various things, but, but never kind of hit the home run uh, that we were looking to, uh, to do uh, before I left. I'm not trying to get you in trouble here, but now that you don't work for the city anymore, what, what do you see the future of that site being? And this is not NASCAR talk. Everybody's like, why, why am I listening to this? But uh, like, what do you see the future of that site being? Do you think that there's any shot of, a potential new sports venue, probably not going to be the commanders at this point, but I mean, that is a historic site with so, so much rich history in the city. What do you see the future of it being? Yeah, it's hard to say because there, there's a, there's a rift between kind of the neighbors, especially those that are newer to the city and newer to that neighborhood, wanting to have other amenities like retail and, and uh, grocery stores and, and bars and restaurants and parks and things of that nature, um, as opposed to the, the city wanting it to be anchored by either a, a football stadium or an arena. Um, we put forward when I was with Events DC a $3 billion vision for what that could be. And one of those visions, you had a 20,000 seat arena and a 65,000 seat stadium all in the same place. And there were still room for parkland, still room for some retail and, and, and even, some, uh, even some housing as necessary. It's a 190 acre uh, site. And so there's, there's room to, to check a lot of boxes and to do a lot of things. I just hope that, uh, that it, it, it does as much as it can do yeah. uh, for the city because it, that whole area anchors the Eastern part of the city. Yeah, you're right. You and me both. Man, I could talk to you about that all day, but I know people come here for racing talk so we're going to get into that. But before we get into the deep nitty gritty race to talk, we got to hit on your background a little bit more. And surprise, surprise, we're staying in D.C. Uh, the defenders of the XFL, obviously, they came calling to you a little bit ago, handful of years, I guess, two years now at this point. When did they come calling? How did that process happen? Why did you end up taking the role as team president there and kind of fill in the gaps between working for the city as kind of the sports commissioner and then going to a league and doing things over there? Yeah, I, you know, got a call from a headhunter about uh, the opportunity. And they said to me, and we, we had talked about various things before that. And they said to me, um, when this came across our desk for president uh, of the, the DC team for the XFL, we knew you'd be the perfect person. And so um, it fulfilled for me an opportunity to, to move to the team side uh, and to be in stick and ball sport, you know, as, as kind of the sports commissioner for DC, I was much more tied to venues and not to particular teams. Um, that was my primary responsibility. Yes, we worked with DC United. We worked with Monumental Sports Entertainment. We worked with uh, the commanders and, and others and the city open and all these various other organizations, but my job wasn't really to support one team. And so that was always something that was very interesting to me. So I jumped at the opportunity, was happy to be you know, involved with that. It was a, a great experience. I had a great partner in Pep Hamilton, who was our coach and GM, who you know played at Howard and, and also coached there and is now the offensive coordinator down in Houston for the Texans. Um, and, and, you know, it was, a, it was probably the most fun I've had in my career, uh, trying to build that fan base with a sport that people loved and is by far America's favorite sport. Uh, but to bring that sport to people at a time when there is no professional football. And so it was a lot of fun. Um, it was, I felt like at that time, a natural extension of my career. Um, and, and I enjoyed it, but I got to tell you, you know, I had an interview earlier today with someone and I said, uh, there are a lot of similarities between what I did in that role and what I'm doing here. 
you know, both of them were kind of startups in different kinds of ways. I don't have to explain to people generally uh, why NASCAR is exciting to our new fans and, 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 and kind of some of the underrepresented communities that we want to try to pull into the sport we do, but our core fans understand it. I don't have to explain, well, no, our rules are a little different than the NFL and in college, which I had to do at the XFL. Right. And, but we're kind of all in this together. And now being a part of Speedway Motorsports, where there are, we have 10 tracks and I can call up Jill Gregory at Sonoma or Brandon Hutchinson in Atlanta or Greg Walter in Charlotte and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or what are your suggestions on that? It's the same kind of collegial feeling I had when I was in the XFL working with seven other team presidents who all reported to the same person. Very cool. That's interesting. There's a lot of parallels that a lot of fans and industry members alike, they kind of make that between wrestling, WWE, and NASCAR being entertainment, but also sport, athleticism, things of that nature. The XFL in and of itself, it was a incredible sport. It's football, but it's not the NFL. It's not college. It's something that kind of could and did live amongst itself. And now it's kind of making a rebirth in a certain way. How did you figure out the correct way to market the defenders and market the product that you guys had to fans to make sure that they understood it was something different than what they see in the NFL or in college football. But at the same time, it's still at the core football, something that Americans and sports fans love. But at the same time, it's also different and kind of has its own unique identity because that's a really tough balance to strike. Yeah, I think part of that really was about taking advantage of the feeling for longtime NFL fans like myself and others that the NFL had in some ways lost its way whether it was around the social justice issues or whether it was around the way the game is being officiated, um, how long the games were, uh, long stretches where there wasn't really any action. And so the rules were set up for the XFL to address those very issues. Um, and so what we were saying was, we're not telling you you have to give up your NFL team. We're saying in the offseason, here we are. And guess what? Those things that you dislike about the NFL, we're going to address those. We're going to make things better. We're going to try to get our games in under three hours. You want to be closer to the action? You're going to be able to hear the head coach call the plays into the quarterback, um, just as if you were in the huddle. Uh, you know, we're going to get you, you, you know, down on the field pregame uh, in a way that that people hadn't had an opportunity to experience unless they were spending tens of thousands of dollars, you know, as a corporate sponsor uh, with an NFL team. Um, and from the officiating standpoint. Uh, we, we changed our rules and, and, and made certain that officials weren't, you know, if a guy holds somebody for five seconds on the, on the weak side, away from where the play is going, and that hold was going to have no bearing whatsoever on the play, keep the flag in your pocket. Why are we stopping a play that it was inconsequential what happened on that infraction to the, to the ultimate play? Why are we doing that? Right. And so, and even the, the example I used to use for people all the time was the, the worst play in, in professional football is the kickoff, right? So we line up 22 people, the guy kicks the ball into the end zone or into the stands or what have you, and then we change out those 22 people and bring no, new folks on. Nothing happens. Nothing to advance the game happens. It's a waste of time, right? So we got rid of that in the XFL. You couldn't kick it out of bounds. You had to kick it to someone. And because we wanted one of the most exciting plays in football is a kickoff run back, right? So we want to see more of those things. Fans wanted to see that. So I think there are really a lot of common sense rule changes and explaining that to people and telling them why 
this was in addition to their NFL team or their college right. team was the was the angle that we took and folks liked it and they liked the fact that they felt like um this league was not going to take itself too seriously it was going to be respectful of the sport and not mm-hmm. be over the top like the first iteration of the XFL was that kind of tried to bring wrestling to the football field that doesn't work and so we struck I think the right balance between respecting the sport but also innovating in a way that benefited fans directly so as the story goes, you get hired by the Defenders, you make a trip up to the Monster Mile at Dover International Speedway at that time to kind of see what the vibe was and how NASCAR did fan activation and sponsorship and all those different types of things. You meet Mike Tatoyan, and I guess the rest is history, huh? Yeah, well, I already knew Mike because, you know, part, Military of bull, I, right. part of what I did at, 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 a, at a, uh, the commission, the sports commission, was to help start and found the military bowl which right. is a college bowl game the first and only college bowl game that dc has ever hosted and um and mike and i serve on the board of directors for the military bowl foundation so he invited all of our board members to that race october of, of 19 the dry driving 400 and uh but I, you're correct that i got to see and experience nascar firsthand for the first time and that opened my eyes a lot about the sport not just the things i came there for which were the fan activation and the fan engagement sponsor activation. But it was, as I've said many times, younger, browner, and more female than I ever expected it to be. Now, I had low expectations, but they were outpaced by what I experienced when I was there, whether it was in the fan zone or in the pits. And that kind of opened my eyes to, well, maybe I have this thing wrong. Maybe the way I'm thinking about this sport isn't exactly um, all true. And so, uh, you know, uh, I guess fast forward, that was October of 19, fast forward to June of 20. And I get an email from Mike Tatoin saying, Eric, I'm trying to find you. At this point, I'm working at a friend's law firm and have my own consulting firm. And he says, I need to talk to you. So I call him and he says, I've got a crazy idea, but don't say anything until I explain the whole thing to you. And he proceeds to tell me how uh, Dover Motorsports at that time owned the track. Uh, outside of Nashville that had been closed down for 10 years because they could never get a cup race. And uh, and now they got a cup race and they need somebody to come in and get the place restarted, repositioned and, and revitalized. And would I be interested? And uh, at that time, I didn't know the difference between a cup race and an Xfinity race. And so <laughs> we had about a, a call it a two month uh, courtship where he explained kind of the NASCAR ecosystem to me and some of the finer points of, of NASCAR. I shared more of my background and experiences and things that I had done. And by the end of that process, we decided it would be a good fit. So how did how did he sell you on that? Because moving is a big deal. I mean, you've been on the East Coast your whole life at this point. You're settled in the D.C. area. You got a great contact base, great professional network there. Not only are you moving geographically, you're having to learn a new industry, a new sport, you're taking up and running a facility, a big facility at that in a major market, a major area of the country for this new sport that you didn't really know. What what were the major selling points and what made you want to take that opportunity and run with it? It was the challenge. It was a challenge. It was a, a, a major sport, uh, to your point, a, a super major uh, destination market in Nashville, um, a place that loves this sport, but that had been starving for it at the highest level uh and as i said i'm a son of the south and so moving to the south wasn't wasn't anything that i dreaded i was actually looking forward to that and i thought it had all of the 
potential pieces that if aligned properly could, could make us successful. And so I jumped at the opportunity. You also have to remember we were in the middle of a pandemic and yeah. had laid waste to sports, entertainment, hospitality, and leisure. And so having a real opportunity to do something as ambitious as this and under those circumstances, I mean, I, I didn't really have to think twice about it. I, I consulted with many of my mentors in, in the industry and said, all right, am I missing something? Does this make sense for me? Is this the right next move for me? Can I be successful in this industry, in this sport? Will I be accepted? All of those kinds of things. And the, the feedback came back positively. And then I think probably what sealed it for me was a great conversation I had with Steve Phelps um, before I ever kind of you know, signed on the dotted line. And it was a very candid you know, 45 minute conversation uh, about the direction that he and the leadership at, at NASCAR and the France family were taking the sport, things that they wanted to do and, um, and how I could be a part of that. And uh, that sealed the deal for me. So you make the decision, you're going to take on this challenge, you're going to learn this new industry, you're going to go into a new sport, new geographic location, you're ready to do it, you're, you're making history being the first black track president, right? How did you learn the sport? Because for somebody like me and a lot of people that are in positions like yours, they've been in the industry for 10, 20, 30 years, they know all the intricacies, they know the jargon, they know all the people, they know the ins and the outs, and you came in at ground zero. So how did you get from that point to where you are now? Reading, reading and asking <laughs> questions. You know, as soon as I, when Mike and I first started talking, first thing I did was jump on Amazon and order some books about NASCAR and about the history of NASCAR. And I started educating myself about this sport. And then I started asking questions and talking to people that I know, Max Siegel, who runs Rev Racing, and it's very much involved in our Drive for Diversity program, was one of my uh, friends that I consulted with about this and asked a bunch of questions. He introduced me to Brandon Thompson, who runs uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion for NASCAR and interned at this track back when it was open between 2001 yep. and 2011. A Nashville native. And so I talked to him and, uh, and people have been very willing to answer my questions, to pour into me their knowledge, experience, their opinions. I have many, many friends and colleagues in this industry that, that have shared a lot. I mean, I gave you a perfect example. So, um, so a couple of weeks ago, I think it may have been the Kansas race I was watching and Larry McReynolds uh, makes a comment about uh, uh, stickers and scuffs. And I don't know what he's talking about. And so I have had the good fortune of becoming friends with Daryl Waltrip who lives here in my backyard. And so I text DW and I said, DW, McReynolds just says stickers and scuffs. What is he talking about? And he proceeds to text me back and he tells me stickers are new tires, scuffs are used tires. Now, as far as I knew, once a tire came off a race car, it got trashed or recycled or whatever. It never went back on. Yeah. But I didn't know that. Sometimes we run them a couple laps in practice and we'll, use, we'll reuse them during a race. And so being able to go to people like him or like Winston Kelly, who's the executive director of the Hall of Fame and is a dear friend, or frankly, Marcus Smith or Greg Walter in Charlotte um, or Joe Gregory or anybody at NASCAR and ask those kinds of maybe dumb questions or questions for the uninformed and not have people go, well, why don't you know that? Or that's a stupid question. But to give you a straight answer and explain those nuances, it's fantastic, man. That's what you want. 100%. I, I love that story. And I love sharing the sport with people that are not in it and giving them that experience. I've done that with a lot of friends recently, especially given the 
the stances that NASCAR's taken being more progressive. They have seen that happen more and they've gotten into a little bit more because of that. Um, are there any other funny stories for you that come to mind with that's that scuffs and the sticker tire thing, or maybe something else that came to mind where you texted DW I, that whole, first of all, subtle flex, by the way, you're just like, yeah, I just text DW asking these questions. Like, you know, DW's a legend, but are there any other like funny stories like that where you just don't know what you don't know? And like the smart man you are, you ask the questions and you get answers from legends that they are. None that, that, that bear it out as well as, as that one. I ask a lot of questions to a lot of people. Uh, Good. I called somebody. So Ty Norris, who used to work with Dale senior and is a member of the track house team is a friend as well. And I think there was one race, maybe it's Fontana. Um, and I think they got seven wide or at least five wide at, at one point. And I remember, I think, sending Ty a text and asking, like, what is it about that track that allows that allows for that to happen? And, you know, learning about the different grooves and, and, and things of that nature, asking questions of, you know, with Winston Kelly, I ask about history because I love the history of the sport. So I ask yeah, about, yeah. you know, who who did what when for Ty and DW and others. It's usually around um, the, the technical uh, parts of the sport, you know, wanting to understand, you know, how do I know when a driver is good? I see a guy racing on an ARCA circuit. H how do I know he's good other than, other than winning? How do you guys identify talent, especially in a sport where the, the equipment is so important to your success, right? How can you distinguish those things? So those are ongoing conversations that I have with people in, in, in the industry. And, and I just find it fascinating. I find that fat. I find the fact that you find it fascinating, fascinating <laughs> because somebody that's in a position like yours to not know all of these things. And then in such a short period of time to not only read up on the history, but talk with the people that have all the knowledge to give you and you have absorbed that and then more you've been like the ultimate sponge which i think is a testament to you but it had to be at some points i'm i'm assuming overwhelming a little bit just to say wow i mean i may have bit off a lot more than i could chew here or did you feel pretty confident throughout the learning process that you know you were learning it and you were being respected and you were gaining that knowledge base i am not easily overwhelmed um so i, I never felt overwhelmed by it um, I always knew that there were knowledge resources out there for me, whether that was people or, or books or articles or what have you. Um, and, and I'm intellectually curious. And so learning about these things is just a, a lot of fun to me. And so, yeah. you know, now I'm, I go to Charlotte, I go visit the race teams. You know, I was at um, Childress uh, Racing the last time I was in Charlotte and taking a look at their race shop. I, I like talking to the mechanics and the engineers and figuring out what they're doing. I mean, it's fascinating to think that even now, but a little less now with the, with the next gen car, but these guys were making cars <laughs> from scratch, from the chassis all the way out and building cars from scratch in these race shops, race shops that by the way, you can eat off the floor in every single one that I've been to. That's the way. Oh yeah. I mean, that in and of itself is a fascinating thing. And, and you know, I feel passionately about these things. And I, I hope that I'm, I've been successful at sharing that passion with, with fans and, and, and people who aren't fans so that we can try to convert and open the eyes of those who, who might not have ever thought about our sport, but who might now give it a thought if they have a conversation with me or you or someone else who, who really has an appreciation for it. 
you definitely have been. Take my word for it. And I think that's also coming across in, in this conversation too. Okay, so you're gaining the knowledge, you're gaining the relationships, you, you got your footing, and then you actually have to go about reopening and revitalizing a track, a venue, a market that was dormant for the better part of, if not more than a decade. How do you begin to go about that? Lots of help from a lot of people. You know, this is a really important market for our sport. Everybody from, you know, Jim France all the way down, I think, uh, understands that. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, I don't think the industry was going to let us fail here. Um, but that doesn't mean that it was easy. And it doesn't mean that, that, that our uh, success was assured. Um, there were a lot of naysayers uh, about whether or not this was the right place to bring a cup race and whether or not they should spend their time just focusing on the fairgrounds because of the historic nature of that track and, you know, the, the desire these days for short track racing. Um, and so it took a contribution from a lot of people to, to get ourselves ready for this, to physically transform uh, the venue uh, and to also make certain that we put on a great race. You know, kudos to Steve O'Donnell and the team at competition for making certain that what we were able to do with the surface uh, of the track uh, provided for good and competitive racing. Uh, you know, we got four wide there on Sunday and I think Friday and Saturday as well. I know the trucks really got after it on Friday night. And so the, the surface raced well. Um, you know, we can't be responsible for, for, for what Kyle Larson did to the field uh, at our place and at a bunch of other places last year. Um, you guys are not alone. Yeah, yeah, we're a good company on that. But yeah. um, it, it really, uh, in all seriousness, took a lot of effort by a lot of people. The folks in Dover were fantastic. Many of them spent you know, multiple weeks here uh, helping us get ready, as, as did uh, a lot of our colleagues from NASCAR who pitched in to, to ensure that things were going to go well. So I mentioned uh, you became the first black track president in the history of NASCAR. There's no way of understating that. That is a ginormous deal. I'm curious if you felt that that was a big deal or since you came in kind of cold turkey, not really knowing a lot about the sport, besides maybe some of the stereotypical things, not even from the racial component, but just seeing what you see being in the sports market where you were, did you feel the impact of that? Or do you think that that's something that is still kind of being felt and worked through in terms of the industry and, and how people see you as an impactful figure? Well, I think the industry is moving in the right direction in terms of broadening our approach, uh, our being intentional about outreach, uh, to all communities uh, to grow the sport. Uh, and anybody who loves this sport should be excited about that. Um, because, you know, if you love something, you want to share it with other people. You want other people to love the thing too. Um, I didn't set out to make history. I didn't know that until towards the end of the process with Mike that I would be the first. Being a first in 2020, as it were, um, you know, in, in some ways it's kind of a bummer because that says at that time for 73 years, nobody who looked like me had done this before. Surely there have been people who were qualified, probably way more qualified than me uh, to, to hold this kind of position. So, so in some ways that's disappointing. Um, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Um, I, I'll tell you another story that, that really highlights it for me and why, if it's important, why it's important. Um, in October of 20, I think I went to the Roval race down in Charlotte and had some meetings at the NASCAR building down there. And this is when I first met Winston Kelly and, and got a tour of the, of the NASCAR Hall of Fame, which I was totally geeking out about because I got to see the history right in front of me oh, yeah. uh, of the sport. So 
I'm there, I meet Winston. We're all in masks, because this is October of 20, so we're all in masks. I meet Winston. I see a black family in the Hall of Fame, a father, mother, and a teenage son. And I go, that's cool. Not a whole lot of people in, in the hall because COVID, they have fewer people. We go up to the second floor and the father comes up to me and he says, hey, um, do you run the track in Nashville? And I'm like, uh, yeah, which is surprising because I have a mask on. You can't even see my whole face. I have a mask yeah. on. He says, I thought that was you. My son recognized you as soon as you walked in because he follows you on Instagram can we take a picture with you? And I said, you have to take a picture. Well, I, I want to take a picture with you all. Please come over. So whole family comes over. His son, whose name is Harper Lucas, Harper is 15 now. Um, his son, encyclopedic knowledge of NASCAR, wants to be an announcer when he grows up, loves it, loves everything about the sport, um, and had been following me on, on Instagram. Me being the first and doing a really good job in this role is something, doing a really good job is something I expected myself. But being the first is important if for someone like Harper and other young people or, or anybody who's from an underrepresented group thinks, oh, that guy did it. And he's kind of like me. He's an outsider. He's somebody you wouldn't typically think of as doing, a, doing this role and being successful. And if he can right. do it, then I can do it. If it serves as any amount of inspiration to someone else, then it's an important thing. But I'm going to try to do the best job I can because that's the standard I hold myself to. Well said. I can tell you hold yourself to a high standard. You don't get, you don't get frazzled too easily, Eric. It's in your <laughs> DNA. So at that point in time, right, the summer of 2020, um, NASCAR banned the Confederate flag. MJ is coming into the sport. Bubba is making waves nationally and internationally, standing up for what's right. Um, was NASCAR on your radar at all leading up to this point and the conversations that you had with Mike? Was it on your radar more because of these events that were happening? Or was it always kind of something that, yeah, you knew it was there and you went to Dover for the XFL and you knew Mike and that type of thing, but it wasn't really more than that. Like how, how prevalent on your radar was the sport before you took the job? I think it was on my radar more than it would have been because of the social unrest in the country and the way that NASCAR was responding. Um, sure. From the, the, the controversy down at Talladega with, with Bubba, the banning of the Confederate flag and the stance that, that NASCAR was taking, the progressive stance I think that they were taking in the midst of all of that, they were higher in my consciousness than they would have otherwise been. The sport took that time and opportunity to distinguish itself in two ways during, during the, the pandemic. One, we were the first ones back with fans in the stands, back to our regular schedule, um, faster than any other, any other major professional sport. And so we showed that we knew how to get ourselves together and get back to competing and then getting fans back in the stands and doing that safely. So that was something that told me that the leadership here was strong. And then secondly, the fact that they were willing to, to stand up for what I believe was right, knowing that that might have some negative effects on some portion of our fan base in terms of mm -hmm. maybe viewership, maybe ticket, uh, you know, ticket sales, et cetera, but doing it because it was the right thing told me a lot about, again, the leadership of this sport and where the sport was. And, and I think like probably you and so many other people, the image of all of those drivers helping Bubba push his car down pit road at Dega I mean, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it now. I'm back on my computer still. Yeah, it's, it's, it was unbelievable. And I think at that time and in, 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 in that point in what our country was going through, 
we needed to see those type of unifying gestures um, in order to help us heal. And that this sport was at the forefront of trying to do that. You know, I wanted to be a part of that. Going back to the story you told about Harper at the Hall of Fame, I, I read an article and you kind of told, I think you told the same story, but the moral of the story, which you kind of touched on, was about visibility. Like visibility matters. Um, people see Bubba Wallace as a black driver. People see Rajat Karuth. People see a lot of drivers that come through the Drive for Diversity program. Daniel Suarez is a perfect example this past week, right? A Hispanic or Latino driver, a little boy or a little girl can see Suarez and say, you know what? There may not be a lot of Hispanic drivers, but there's Daniel. If he can do it, I can do it. Yep. And the fact that Bubba has been the lone African-American driver in Cup for a while, and you are the first Black Track president, you know, Bubba is more of a forward-facing figure because casual fans don't know track presence. They know drivers, obviously. Right. But the fact that you are now a visible force in the motorsports and in the industry, I personally think that matters. And whether or not people realize that you're a track president or people think that you're a mechanic, whatever, it doesn't matter. But the fact of the matter is that visibility does matter. And a lot of people say, well, you know, I like to stay behind the scenes and I do this, I do that, whatever. But, you know, the quote that you had in that article, and I think Bubba's spoken about it at length as well, and so is Suarez, so is, you know, Haley Deegan, a lot of female drivers that are coming up, representation and visibility are of the utmost importance to ensure that the growth of the sport in the areas of minorities continues. Do you kind of feel the same way? Absolutely. Representation matters. You can't see it, you can't be it. And um, I think that's important at every level of our sport. It is just as important that people know that, um, you know, John Ferguson, who's another DC guy who was in HR for Monumental Sports Entertainment, is our chief human resources officer for NASCAR, a black man. That uh, our, our general counsel for NASCAR is a black woman. That Eric Ryan runs comms for NASCAR is a black man. Uh, Juson Hamilton was the first black race director for the Daytona 500. I mean, there are all these things that are, that are happening. And it's important for people to be able to see that there is some representation at every level because not everybody wants to be a driver. You know, you can't walk down pit road at any racetrack and not see a, a person of color and some women involved in pit crews uh, at, at our tracks. And that's a great thing because I want young ladies and girls to, to see representation of, of their gender down pit road. And, and I would be ecstatic if we could get another Danica Patrick or someone or Haley Deegan or someone who's able to uh, ascend to the cup level uh, because, you know, for better or worse, most of the attention in our sport as it relates to the athletes is at the cup level. And so that you have one Latinx driver and one African-American driver, people think that's the only representation in our sport. And it's not. There's so many more of us at every level of the sport, including with our broadcast partners, with our sponsors, um, you know, everywhere in this sport. And, and, and it's my job and NASCAR's job and uh, promoter's job to help tell that story and do it in a better way. Very, very well said. I think, I mean, I, I knew this, but I hope the people that are listening are realizing that Eric's probably one of the smartest people in the sport. Uh, and touching on a couple quick hitters here as we wrap up, he's an adjunct professor, or I guess you were up until a couple of years ago, at Georgetown. So you're obviously giving back to the younger community and you're imparting your wisdom on them, or you were. So good on you for that, because as busy as you were and you are, the fact that you also did that, I don't know how you balance it all. 
it was fun to do that and stay connected with uh, aspiring sports executives. Um, I did that for about 10 years. Uh, thankfully, just in the summers, I only taught one class, but uh, but it was great to, to hear the, the perspectives and the opinions of, of young people who are looking to, in, in many instances, to transition from other careers into sports uh, and sports entertainment and, and to understand how they view different things. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed that. I'm hoping at some point I'll be able to get back in the classroom here uh, in, yeah. in Middle Tennessee and, uh, and, and, and be able to, to share some of my experiences with, with some more folks. Uh, I probably should have touched on this earlier, but I mean, you mentioned law school. Uh, you went to law school at Duke, and I think that your first job out of school was as an attorney. Yeah. Um, was that the path that you were going down, the, the law path, and were you set on basically being, I know you are still an attorney, but was that going to be the path that you kind of wanted to set yourself on? Yeah, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I, I went to law school thinking I was going to be a sports agent, um, but uh, but. I started off my career in private practice, buying and selling TV and radio stations for commercial broadcast clients. And um, you know, I got to a point where you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the, the firm and the clients and the folks that I worked for, but I wasn't certain that I wanted to be a partner in a law firm when I grew up. So I, I left and went to, uh, to AOL Time Warner, uh, which at the time was the, the largest entertainment company on the face of the planet, and, uh, and figured there were, there were things that I could learn there. And then, like most transactional attorneys, I decided I wanted to get closer to the deal. And so to leave the law, which in some ways can be very limiting, and to get onto the business side. And, and I haven't looked back since then. So um, it's, it's been an interesting career. Uh, as I, I said to somebody recently, um, from a very early age, I kind of had a, a plan and a path that, that I uh, set for myself. And then probably when I left AOL, um, I just made a deal with myself that I was going to let the path find me, you know, and, and, and not necessarily try to figure out, well, this is the next step in this and this. People often ask me, well, what do you want to do next? Like, what's your dream job? I've never been a, I want to be the commissioner of the NFL. Like, I'm not that guy. I want to look for opportunities where I can be successful, where I can be my full self, my authentic self, uh, where I can work with good people on challenging and ambitious goals and, uh, and do good work. And we have the privilege in sports and entertainment to be able to help to put smiles on people's faces and to, and to help create common ground for people who might in their daily lives never interact with each other. But for a couple hours uh, during one of these events, they get to kind of be on the same team, rooting for the, yeah. the same team, the same driver. Um, and that's a really special, a special thing that we get to do. And so I love doing that. Talk about ambitious goals and thinking outside the box. Bristol Motor Speedway and the SMI family, they have hosted a football game before. I know that that is something that you are maybe not actively looking or pursuing, but that's something that you want to do at Nashville Super Speedway down the road, preferably with an HBCU or a couple HBCU schools. You had the AT&T Nations Classic here in D.C., and um, I think hosting a football game on the infield right behind you on that virtual background, that would be a pretty pretty freaking cool time so let's make it happen you're the man to do it we are we are we are working on it and you're right we do have some uh, some in-house knowledge on how to do that in this company and so it is high on my list of things to do and as you can see in that background i mean there's seven acres there there's a lot that we can oh, yeah. do there and, and i want to do football and soccer and lacrosse and all kinds of other tournaments we've hosted a a, a county-wide cross-country meet here not not on the ball field but on our campus our, our, our 700 acres we're going to look to be a full service 
uh, live events venue for, for many years to come and to really be an asset to this community. So you will be the first to know when, uh, when, when we get that deal done, but uh, we are actively <laughs> working on, on something. All right, I'll hold you to that. I'll be the first. Um, all right, let's end talking about the race weekend coming up. I mean, you guys have rolled out the red carpet. Kane Brown, Seamus, Brothers Osborne, by the way, NBC's kicking off their coverage. So Peacock Pit Box is going to be out there. Dale Jr. is going to be hanging out. All the NBC crew is going to be there. I mean, I could not think, and I said this last year too, I couldn't think of a better place for kind of the change to happen between television partners, the off weekend to come back from that. Couldn't think of a better place than Nashville Super Speedway to do so. And you guys are clearly going all out for this weekend. And with the parking, things that are going to get resolved and all the acts that you have in the midway and that are going on at the track, it sounds like it's going to be and it's gearing up for another incredible weekend of racing in Lebanon. Well, we certainly hope so. And, you know, our fans deserve that. And so that's what we're going to try to give to them. And yeah, we, we, we hope to have even more announcements up, upcoming, but, uh, but it, it's going to be a lot of fun. And it, it, like I said, if the weather will cooperate with us a little bit, uh, it'll be great. We've got a, we've got a later start for our cup race, so four o'clock central start, 5 PM Eastern, which uh, means that the majority of the race, the sun will be behind the grandstands. People won't be sitting in direct sunlight. But, you know, it, it'll be warm because we're in Middle Tennessee in June. So so it'll be warm, but uh, but it's going to be a good time. And like I said, so much more to see, do and experience out here uh, during the entire weekend. We want folks to uh, to come out and, and, and give it a shot. I'm seeing triple digits on the forecast. Are you too? Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm praying for that cold front to come from Canada uh, middle of next week and uh, cool things yeah. down a bit. Man, it's going to be a hot one. It's going to be hot on and off track out there at National Super Speedway. I cannot thank you enough for the time here today, Eric. You have given me so much of it, and I know you've been on Zoom calls for basically the entire day, and I know you love it because you love promoting your racetrack, but I, um, I'm glad that you were able to give the fans a peek behind the curtain into you and your career before NASCAR and how your expertise is going to make Nashville a better track. It's going to make NASCAR a better sport, and we are all better off for you being in it with us. So I thank you for your time today and I hope to see you soon. I will hold down DC for you, but we always would like to have you back here. <laughs> well, thank you. It's always good to be with you. Thanks for the coverage and uh, that your fans know that there are still tickets available so they can uh, come out here and experience Nash cars. We like to say firsthand. Yes. Where can they get their tickets? Uh, Nashville superspeedway.com Ticketmaster, or they can call 866-RACE-TIX. Love it. Love it. We'll have coverage all week long on Sirius XM NASCAR radio from the events at Nashville Super Speedway. And you guys know that I'll have some analysis here on the pod as well. Eric, thank you, my brother. I really appreciate it, man. Talk to you soon, man. And we are back. Woo, what a guy. I'm telling you, man, I, I could hire him to be my attorney. I could hire him to help me as a life coach. I could hire him to help me learn anything and everything. It seems like if you want to have success, stick with that guy. He'll get you squared away. I mean, look, everybody wants to say that they like a challenge and they're all for a challenge, blah, blah, blah. Uprooting your life and moving, going into a new sport, a new industry that you are pretty much unfamiliar with. Yeah, I'd say that's a challenge on top of the fact that you're trying to revitalize and revamp a track that's been dormant for over a decade. So nothing but the utmost respect for Mr. Moses for what he's done and continues to do at Nashville Super Speedway. Hope that it's a great race weekend out there. 
this weekend. And again, for fans that are listening that are thinking about going out there, make sure you hydrate. But tickets, I think, are still available. So go check out the fine folks out there in Lebanon. And thank you so much to Eric for the time. And thank you to Michael Lewis for helping coordinate that conversation. Gave me a little bit more time than usual. And I so am appreciative of that. Briefly got to talk about Knoxville Raceway, the second and final dirt race for the Camping World Truck Series in 2022. Much better show than 2021. Did not have 30-something laps of overtime. Did not have absolute rooting and gouging people out the way just for a position. You could race along the racetrack. There were multiple grooves, multiple lanes. Thank God everybody's okay. Brett Moffitt rode the guardrail. Jessica Friesen flipped, for goodness sake. Um, I know people were upset with Fox for missing that, and I'm sure they would tell you that's inexcusable as well. But you know what? Stuff happens. You got to move on. Main point is everybody's all right, which is good to hear. But I thought it was a pretty solid race. You know, I'm interested to see if the Truck Series opts to go back to Knoxville next year. We haven't really heard anything on that, and I think that there may be an option to either stay or go. Wouldn't be surprised either way. But bottom line is NASCAR made improvements on what was last year, I would say, a lackluster show, and they very much so made it into a better on-track product this year. So kudos to them for that, and kudos to Todd Gilliland for coming home with the win for his dad's team on Father's Day weekend. That was pretty cool. And again, we don't really have to talk about Nashville too much because I think you just heard a lot of it with Eric Moses, but a triple header this weekend. The Cup Series is back from the off week. The Xfinity Series is back from a couple weeks off. And it is going to be hot, hot, hot. Temperatures approaching, if not getting upwards of, triple digits. It's Tennessee in the summer, folks. Buckle up. No coolers are allowed inside, but you can bring unlimited amounts of bottled, sealed water. There's going to be water refilling stations in the facility, cooling stations. Nashville's got you covered if you are worried about potential dehydration heat strokes, whatever. Like Nashville will take care of you, and they're obviously going to have a lot of refreshments and bottled water there to keep you hydrated throughout the race. So if you are going, please prepare accordingly. And if you're watching on television, just like me, I'm going to sit back in my air-conditioned apartment with uh, some food on my couch and enjoy it in the comfort of my own home. But I'm excited for a bit of a later start than usual. Nashville is in the central time zone, so the green flag set to fly just past 5 p.m. Eastern time. The big thing to remember this weekend, folks, NBC has taken over NASCAR coverage for the remainder of the year. Truck Series can still be found on Fox and Fox Sports 1, but all Xfinity Series and Cup Series races, they can be found on USA Network or NBC. No NBCSN anymore. You can also check your local listings for when the specific practice and qualifying sessions will be. There's some pre- and post-race shows that are going to be streamed exclusively on Peacock. So if you're an Xfinity customer, you get Peacock for free. I do here in my apartment, which is awesome. And if you don't sign up, it's probably not too, too much money. And I understand that streaming is going crazy right now. But if you want pre- and post-race coverage, you can get it on Peacock. You can also get it, obviously, on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio Channel 90. You like that plug, don't you, Daniel Norwood? Yes, sir. So, I'm excited for Nashville this weekend. I'm excited to see three races in action on back-to-back-to-back nights, not to mention all the weekly series action. The Arkham Menard series is in action. After last weekend with no cup, no Xfinity, there was still plenty going on, 
But now that the head honchos are back in action, we are ready to rock and roll in the Music City. That'll wrap things up for episode 153 of Victory Lane 2.0. Do me a favor. If you like what you heard here today, please subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Google, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. We should be available there for your consumption on most podcast players. If we're not, drop me a line on Twitter and I'll try to rectify that issue for you and get you squared away. Thank you for all the feedback on the Cody Efaw interview from last week. Clip went pretty viral on Twitter about him teasing Carson Hosevar potentially running in the Cup Series next year. Guys, it was just a teaser. I mean, is it possible? Yes. But everybody's going and running with this. Oh my God, Carson's going full-time Cup racing 2023. Peek behind the curtain. I won't reveal our conversation, but Carson and I were talking about that privately. And some of the things he said were really funny. Essentially, people read into things way, way too much. Listen to what he said. He said nothing about full-time. He said nothing about 100% guaranteed. It just is preliminary talks. Will it happen? I don't know. Could it happen? Absolutely. But, wow. People jumping to conclusions on Twitter, especially racing fans? Wow. Never seen that before. You know I love you guys, but that, that had me laughing this week for sure. So as I said, leave a rating and a review. Subscribe. Hope you guys like what you heard today, and I know you guys are going to like what you hear next week. I'm going to give it a little teaser, and I think I gave it a teaser a couple months ago, but I officially have this in the can. All I'll say is three words. Good afternoon, everyone. If you know, you know. We'll catch you next week. Enjoy Nashville, party people.